0: Please be seated. Well, we have come quite a ways in our study of the life of Moses. Uh, We have seen Moses as he was raised in the household of Pharaoh. We've seen Moses as he had to flee Egypt and go to the land of Midian where he married. He became a, a shepherd and my guess is that for 40 years Moses thought... You know, that's just about all life was going to be. And then one day God calls him from the burning bush and says, Moses, I've got something for you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to bring my people out. I want you to confront Pharaoh. Moses wasn't all into that at first, but God eventually got his attention. And with the help of his brother Aaron, that was accomplished. And then after all the plagues and the different things that went on in Egypt, we have followed the Israelites as they got to the Red Sea and then crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and then got over. Go ahead and put the map up, Dennis. And we've seen as they, they come down here and we saw where they complained and grumbled about water and about food and all those different things. But God has been leading them and they're heading to a, a meeting with God. And they're going to the mountain of God. They're going to Mount Sinai, which is also known as Horeb, which is also the mountain in which God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. So this is kind of familiar territory, familiar ground for Moses. He knows this area fairly well. And so God is beginning to... Accomplished, beginning to come through on the promises that he made to Abraham all those many years ago. He had promised Abraham that your descendants would become a great nation. Remember at that time, it was just Abraham and Sarah. That was it. Well, now over all these years, they've come and they are a great nation numerically, numbering between one and two million, depending on, you know, who you look at or whatever. So we'll do 1.5. We'll take the average. All right. One and a half million people. So they are a great nation numerically, but they are not a great nation yet. You know, they're just vagabonds out there in the wilderness. They're just wandering around. They, They don't have any land of their own. They don't have You know, a whole bunch of things that you would need in order to call yourself a great nation. And one of the things that they needed to become a great nation was a set of laws. Now, on July 4th, and we know this, right? July 4th, 1776, 13 independent colonies decided that they were going to declare their group independence from England. And so they did. And then a couple of years later, a year later, in 1777, in the middle of the war, the Revolutionary War, they realized that, you know, we need some kind of laws, some kind of contract that kind of binds us together so that we can have unity and so that we can help each other and and accomplish things. And so they adopted what was called the Articles of Confederation. And so that lasted for a few years. And in 1781, the war finally comes to an end. And very quickly, these 13 colonies realized that those articles of confederation are not good enough to really solidify us as a true nation, to protect us from our enemies, to provide for the common defense, as the preamble to our constitution says. And so after many years of discussion and many years of debate, eventually on October, uh, that's the wrong one, on June the 21st, 1788, the Constitution of the United States was ratified. Now, I'm a little ethnocentric. That means I believe in my country. I believe the Constitution of the United States is probably the greatest man-made Document ever contrived, and when you think about all the intricacies of it, and the separation of powers, and the two houses, and and all those different things that went into that way back yonder, it's really remarkable, and that it has stand stood the test of time more or less, uh, even until today. But it wasn't really until the Constitution was ratified that those thirteen independent colonies really became one. Nation. And so God realizes that for Israel to become a nation, they needed a set of laws. And so He's calling them to the mountain because it's there He's going to give them the laws. Now, laws were not a new thing back then. Egypt was a nation of laws. And in 1901, some archaeologists discovered a rock. Basically, it was kind of an obelisk kind of thing, and written on it is what was called the Code of Hammurabi. He was a Babylonian king that predates Moses by 300 years. So, the Code of Hammurabi, which was laws, predates the law of Moses by about 300 years. Now, that's significant for a couple things. One of the reasons it was really significant back in 1901 is because there were a lot of people who tried to argue that the Bible wasn't true because Moses, there was no writing at the time of Moses. Moses couldn't have written Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Couldn't have written that because writing hadn't been invented yet. And then they come up with the code of Hammurabi and not only on the obelisk, but there were some other things that were found as well that proves that writing had come into existence long before Moses and the books of Moses that we know. So that was one of the significant things about the code of Hammurabi. One of the others is it was very similar. A lot of the laws that are contained in the code of Hammurabi are some of the same laws that we see God giving to the Israelites. And that tells me that, you know, when God says that he puts within man a certain morality, that it's there. In the code of Hammurabi, there were things like don't steal. There were things like don't commit murder. There were things like, you know, what happens if, if this happens? And and so there was a sense, even within the Babylonians, 300 years before Moses, that there was a, a certain right and wrong. And so God calls them to the mountain and God wants to give them the law. But before they get the law, they had to prepare themselves. And God wanted them to prepare themselves and God wanted to prepare them. And some of the things that we see as God prepares them to receive the law are even applicable to us today. So the first thing that we see, and we are in Exodus chapter 19. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus 19 and 20 tonight. The first thing we see is that God chooses Israel to choose him. Well, it may not make a whole lot of sense. But beginning in chapter 19 and verse 1. It says in the third month after after the Israelites left Egypt on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they, they entered the desert of Sinai. And, and the Israelites camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord God said, called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, and I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although all the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and some of the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And so it's interesting that God says, Moses, I want you to go tell the people that I have chosen them. That out of all the nations of the world, he says, the whole world's mine. But I have chosen you to be my special treasured possession. That means God is going to lead them. God is going to protect them. God is going to be their their king. God is going to be their, their leader. what is important to remember is that later on God's going to say especially through some of the prophets I chose you not because you were the greatest nation on earth that would have been Egypt or perhaps Assyria or Babylon or one of the other nations if he wanted to choose the great nations he would have chosen one of them because when God chose Israel they weren't even technically a real nation yet They were just some wanderers out there. But God had chosen them way back when he said to Abraham that they were going to be his people. And so God says, you are going to be my treasured possessions, but you have to do what I say. If you choose me, in other words, I've already chosen you, but you have to choose me. And you have to follow me and you have to do what I say. Otherwise, all the promises I'm giving to you, all the things that I am saying I'm going to do for you are not going to happen. Well, that's kind of what God does for us today. God has chosen us to be his people. We were talking about this in the high school class this morning. We were in Ephesians chapter 1 where it talks about how that God, is predest, God predestined us. God chose us from the beginning of the before the, the, the creation of the world. And we were talking about that idea that, that God has chosen the people who choose him. God has chosen those who are in Christ over and over again, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. And if we do what he says, the blessings and the promises are beyond our comprehension. But if we decide we're not going to follow him anymore, then God is not bound to keep those promises. Just as we know, as the Israelites move along and they reject God, God eventually has to send them into captivity. Secondly, he said, no, this isn't second, Dennis. Uh, no, it's a second under that one. Oh, no. Yeah, no. He's chosen us also to be a kingdom of priests. Later, a physical priesthood would be established, but the entire nation of Israel were to be a priest worshiping God. And the same is true for us today. Then he says that they were going to be a holy nation. And we've talked about that word Holy. That it means set apart and dedicated. It wasn't just that God chose them. He chose them for a purpose. He chose them for a reason. And that purpose and reason was to eventually bring forth the Messiah. That was going to be the salvation of the entire world. God has called us to be holy. God has called us to be called out and to be sanctified. It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 where Peter says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now that's what Peter says we are. But that's exactly what God said The Israelites were. I have chosen you. I have made you holy. I have made you separate so that you can be a light to the world. So through you, my glory might be demonstrated throughout the years. And so God says or chooses them to choose him. Now, secondly, Dennis, he talked about washing of some clothes. So look at verse number nine. Number nine. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now we understand the idea, you know, we can, we can kind of, they'd been wandering in the wilderness for three months. They'd been in the desert for three months. We know from some of the encounters we'd had, we had a little earlier, they didn't find a whole lot of water while they were in the desert. And I don't know what their general hygiene code was back then, I don't imagine they bathed nearly as much as we do today. Probably didn't even bathe as much as way back when, when you know, when you, you took a Saturday night bath. You know, probably didn't even bathe that much. So they were a dirty, stinking group of people. By the time they'd been wandering for three months and got to the mountain. And God says, You need to clean yourselves up. You need to consecrate yourselves. You need to wash your clothes. I'm giving you two days to get ready. And then on the third day, I'm coming down. Do you get the idea that God wanted them to understand that this was a momentous occasion? This was a new start. This was a literally a clean start. God is kind of saying to the Israelites, yeah, we've already been through a bunch in the last three months. But starting now, things are going to be different. Isn't that what baptism is for us as well? God says, you've been out there, you've been in the world, you're dirty, you're stinky, you're filled with sin and all those kinds of things. But now I want you to come and I'm going to wash you clean. And that is going to be a momentous occasion. That is going to be a new beginning. That is where our relationship changes. And you become my chosen person. So I think the correlation is there. That's there is very real. The third thing we see is God tells them. Do not approach the mountain. Do not approach God. Look at verse 12. He says. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them. Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up onto the mountain. So God says, I'm going to come down onto the mountain. But before that happens, or while that's happening, you cannot touch the mountain. I don't want anybody touching the mountain. And if somebody does touch the mountain, i kind of like this. If somebody does touch the mountain, they're to be put to death. But they're to be put to death from a distance. They're either to be stoned. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, then somebody needs to get a hold of Amber. (laughs) All right, so where were we? Yeah, we were talking about if somebody touched the mountain, they were either to be stoned or shot with arrows. They weren't to be strangled. Nobody was to touch them. You kind of got the the idea that they 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 were deadly themselves. If somebody touches the mountain and then you touch them, you get the idea you're both goners. But God put up this this boundary around the mountain. And I used to wonder, why? It seems at every step that God is trying to keep the people at a distance. And then, not too long ago, and I've mentioned this to you, I kind of came to a conclusion... That's exactly what God was doing. The whole point of the old law, where only the priest, the high priest, could enter the most holy place, and only once a year. The whole idea of that was to explain to the people, to show to the people, that because of their sin, there is this separation between God and man, between the holy and the common all the way back from the first sin when god after adam and eve sin he says ah uh-uh, our relationship cannot be the same anymore you got to get out of the garden and so we have all this going on and we have this this do not come up on the mountain you have all these different things and in in their time they may not have understood it all but i think looking now back That was God's purpose. You see, if there was no strain in the relationship with man and God, if there was no separation between man and God, then what was the purpose of Jesus? Why did he need to come? If sin did not separate us from God, like Isaiah says it does, then there wouldn't have been any need for all of that. So I think a big part of the old law beginning right here on this mountain was to show that there was a separation between God and man. Now, periodically, throughout, you know, time, God would come down and, and there'd be some fellowship with individuals, kind of. But as far as the nation was concerned, they were not to approach God. But isn't it awesome that the New Testament is all about God coming near? To us, and us being able to draw near to God. That verse we talked about in Hebrews this morning that says, Because of what Jesus has done, because we have a faithful high priest, we can now boldly approach the throne of God. On the day that Jesus was crucified, it says that the veil in the temple was torn. And I think that's the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place. And so a place where nobody was able to enter ever except one man once a year. Now anybody could enter. Was the symbolism there, I believe. You know, isn't it an amazing thing when you're able to, to enter somewhere where you were prohibited from before? I've Told this story, but years ago, we went to, uh, my dad and, and, and a couple of his workers that when he was living in London, we went to Wimbledon to the, to the, to the finals at Wimbledon. Now, if you're not a big tennis person, that doesn't mean anything to you, but that is like, you know, Mecca for a, for a tennis person. And so we're there. And uh, we're all, because my dad is such a stickler for everything, we're all in jackets and ties, even though it's 150 degrees outside, you know, and everybody else around us is in jackets and ties too, and and tickets to Wimbledon, you know, you don't just say, I want to buy a ticket to Wimbledon. They're pretty well handed down and and all these different things. So we're sitting there and we're watching the, the tennis and I am just like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe that I'm sitting here watching Wimbledon. Well, the finals was over, and so most everybody got up to leave. But I knew that the mixed doubles final had not been played. There'd been rain during the week and a bunch of things. So in my mind, I'm thinking they're going to play the mixed doubles final here on center court. And so my dad says, we'd taken a car. He says, we've got to go. I said, I ain't going. He said, no, we need to, you know, we're, we're, we're all leaving, him and his two Business people. And I said, I know where the subway is. I know how to get home. I'm not going. I'm only going to be at Wimbledon once ever in my lifetime. And until they kick me out, I'm staying here. And so he said, (laughs) fine. No, he didn't say it like that. But anyway, they left. And so I'm sitting here. Well, one of the things they do at Wimbledon, which is really neat. If you have tickets, when you leave. You turn the tickets in and then they sell the tickets to this long line of people who've been standing in line for maybe days and they sell them really cheap. You know, a ticket that may have cost a thousand dollars, they'll resell for five bucks, you know, to whoever, whoever's next in line. And so the entire stadium cleared out of all the people that were in coats and ties except for me and all of a sudden it starts filling up with all these mostly teenagers in shorts and backpacks and tank tops and flip flops and all these kinds of things and they're filling in all around me and this little girl young lady that was next to me she leaned over to me and she said she said I know you probably get to do this all the time but I'm just so excited and I was like honey I said you're right I do this all the time yeah I said, why do you think I'm the only one in a tie still here? But just the, the idea that she finally got to come into center court. Something that in her wildest imagination could probably never happen. That's what God and abundantly more. It's what God has done for us. Where we were closed off before. Where we were told not to touch the mountain. Don't go into that room. Don't approach God. Through Jesus Christ he says come. Come approach me. Boldly and with confidence. Then we see the power of God. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast. Notice that was not a human trumpet blast. That was a heavenly trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. God is demonstrating his power to them. Should he have really needed to do that? Hadn't he demonstrated their power to them through the plagues? Hadn't he demonstrated his power as he parted the Red Sea? Hadn't he demonstrated his power when he got water from a rock when he got uh, bitter water and made it fresh when manna came down every night from, from heaven when quail came when they wanted meat all of these ways when 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 they went into battle and as long as you know Moses hands were up they were winning but you see all of those things were instances in which God demonstrated his power through somebody else Mainly Moses. If you weren't really paying attention, you might have got the idea that Moses caused the plagues. You might have got the idea that it was Moses who reached out his staff and separated the Red Sea. That it was Moses who struck the rock and got water from the rock. That it was Moses who threw the piece of wood into the bitter water and it became good water. But now God is showing his independent, awesome power. I can't imagine, you know, I love a good lightning storm. Anybody else love a good lightning storm? I love a good lightning storm. You know, if it's out there and it's thundering and lightning or whatever, I love to go out on the back porch and just watch. I don't actually go out, you know, where the lightning can hit me, but I like to, you know, because the demonstration of the power of God, And that is nothing compared to what was going on on this mountain. I mean, you had all kinds of stuff. You had fire and you had lightning and you had earthquake trembling. You had all these different things. You had clouds. You had everything going on. And I don't think that it's by accident that some of those same things happened when Jesus died. Darkness came over the land. Earthquake happened. Tore the, what's the, the veil of the temple, thank you. Chuck's not here to help me. Graves opened up. God demonstrating his power again. And then lastly, we see the essence of the law. In chapter 20, in verses 1 through, oh, about 17. God gives us what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, you studied the Old Testament. You know that the law of Moses is a lot bigger than Ten Commandments. I mean, it goes into what the priests wear. It goes into what you can eat and not eat. It goes into all these different things, all these different laws that God has for his people. But here in these Ten Commandments, I think God is saying here is the essence of spirituality and morality. Now, some of these other laws, you know, are about different kinds of things. You might call it an outline to the law that's to come. You might call it the table of contents. I mentioned it a minute ago. We have a preamble to the Constitution. I kind of look at the Ten Commandments as a preamble to the law. This is what the law is going to be about. And he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on earth, waters in the, uh, beneath or below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am the Lord your God. I am jealous, punishing the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandment. Worship only me and don't make any idols. Don't get those too confused. Those two commandments are not the same. One, worship me and worship me only. The second one I think has more to do with don't make any image through which to worship me. Don't do that. I don't want you to make an idol in my name. I mean, sure, he says don't worship idols, but isn't that covered in commandment one? Have no other gods but before me but me. You know? That's why in a couple of weeks God is going to be so angry when Aaron makes the golden calf. That's going to be why when Israel secedes su- from Judah and King Jeroboam sets up the golden calves in Dan and Bethel, he's not creating a new religion, he's not saying don't worship Jehovah. He's saying, don't go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship Jehovah. We're going to worship him through these golden calves. And his sin is the sin to which all other compared the rest of the Old Testament. So and so did bad, but not as bad as the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Because nothing was as bad as that. And then he goes on and talks about. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Do not commit murder, adultery, steal. Do not lie, give false testimony. Do not covet. You know. If our world. Ten, ten, ten. You can count them on two hands right. If we could just live in a world. Where everybody. Just observe those Ten Commandments. Wouldn't that be a wonderful place? Be a wonderful place. Now God has more in store for us than that. But tonight I just wanted us to think about the awesome sight as a million and a half people surrounded a mountain and God came down and spoke to them. But they couldn't approach. Jesus comes. And we are called to draw near to God. We are called to approach God. So we have it so much better than the Israelites ever even could have imagined. If there's some way we can help or encourage you this evening, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing.
1: We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D F I E L -D 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 D. C O C dot O R G. Or you can email at D-Field C O C seven seven nine at AOL dot com. Or you can call us at nine zero three six four five two eight nine six. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at eight one eight. West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Her meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.